Welcome to the international teaching ministry of Dr. Joseph G. Matera. As the presiding bishop of Christ Covenant Coalition, he travels the world teaching biblical truth with profound results in both the church world and the marketplace. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and transform your mind as His Word is spoken by one of God's ablest communicators. Atmosphere in this whole place it reminds me of the place that uh, uh, Samuel had in 1 Samuel where even Saul came and was under that prophetic mantle. I uh, started off in evangelistic ministry. I came to Christ when I was 19 in 1978. I was a professional musician. Um, and uh, I moved into prophetic not long after that. And uh, that was my primary ministry. I uh, did a lot of prophetic presbytery and traveled. Uh, actually had a prophetic company in the network that we were in under Apostle John Kelly uh, in the early 90s. Um, and then I moved more into the apostolic, but never left the prophetic uh, motivational gift. So I try to re receive words from God before I do anything major. And uh, this message tonight was something that God gave me. I've never preached it before. I'm always interested in how it comes out, especially when it's the first time. Um, so I try not to just preach messages that are uh, packaged, but I really try to get something from the Lord. And if you want to uh, get any of the seven books I wrote, I have four books, theological books on the kingdom of God and one book you can get for free. Uh, you just go to my website, you download it, uh, it's 12 Ways of Turning Failure to Success. Um, I think it's, it's a small book, but it it's, uh, has a lot of insight. I think it'll be practical. But you go to my website, kingdomrevolution.us, or my name, josephmatera.org. You can connect with me through uh, Facebook and Twitter on there. Um, and also sign up, subscribe, and get a free teaching every week. And basically every day you can go on my website and you'll see, uh, or Facebook, you'll see a daily blog. So there's articles coming out every day, actually. So, Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What I want to speak about are ways we could experience Jesus from the book of Hebrews. So let's go to the book of Hebrews. God, we trust you. We trust that you'll speak to us, that you'll give us your word tonight. Most of the time when I travel, especially internationally, um, I, I teach on the kingdom of God. That's really my main calling and uh, teach on the generational blessing that God brings on families. I have a book called Generational Blessing, and uh, it's uh, really a different book than you've ever read. It's 250 pages. All it is on generational call of biological families. If you're really into families, I would encourage you, or mentoring young people, I would encourage you, or wanting to know how to raise your children or grandchildren, uh, I would encourage you to get that book. So that's normally what I'll deal with when I take the time to travel internationally. Uh, and so I was surprised that the Lord laid this on my heart. So I find that um, in a lot of the teaching that's popular around the world, I always will start off with the United States. Um, we leave Jesus out of a lot of our preaching. A lot of our preaching is motivational preaching, which is good. It's not all bad. And the Bible does have whole sections that deal with practical ways of living, like the book of Proverbs. So when people teach on practical things and not theological things, it's still biblical. The Bible is very practical. Um, but I do believe that as we read both the First and Second Testament, 
we find that the summary of everything written, whether it's practical or theological or philosophical or ideological, whatever you want to look at, the consummation of that or the summary of that is Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. Um, and even the Jews who don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, when they're talking about their Torah or they're talking about the coming Messiah, believe that everything in their own scripture is based on the Messiah, everything. And uh, Paul the Apostle teaches us in Colossians chapter 1, uh, when he's talking about Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 15, he says he's the image of the invisible God. And by him, all things hold together. Uh, and it says in verse 19 that in him, he should have the supremacy of all things. There was a pastor who did an experiment. He was wearing out by doing a lot of counseling. And I'm not against counseling by any means. And I believe in any healing and all that. But he was worn out uh, doing a lot of counseling and uh, marital counseling and all these different kinds of counseling. And he said to himself, you know, I'm going to try something out. He's not a charismatic pastor. He's a Baptist. And he said, I'm going to teach on the being of God for eight weeks. I'm going to just teach on the attributes of God and getting people to know God. And I just want to see what happens. And he taught two months just on who God is. The omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God, the omnipotence of God, the mercy, the love, the truth of God, and just the supremacy of Christ. And after two months, most of his counseling dried up. He found that when people started focusing on Jesus, they stopped having as many marital problems and stopped having as many personal problems. Because they were living a self-focused life. Nobody is going to be perfect this side of heaven. There's no such thing as a perfect husband or wife or mother or father or son or daughter or church member or pastor or perfect church. I tell people in our church, if you find a good church, sign me up, I'll go. Uh, there's no perfect church. Uh, so there's only a perfect God. So when people focus on other people... You're going to be focusing on woundedness, on dysfunction, on uh, things that are hurtful. Uh, there's a lot of good things, obviously, and good people. But uh, if you're going to focus on their foibles, you're going to uh, continue to dig a hole for yourself emotionally and psychologically. But when you focus on Jesus, you have a whole new perspective, even of those who hurt you. And you have the power to love those who despitefully use you and do good to them. And so the book of Hebrews is uh, just an amazing book. It's what we would call a Christologically focused book or a Christocentric book. Uh, I just bask in the beauty of this book. I feast on it. I just love it because I love Jesus. I'm totally sold out. I just want nothing but Jesus. And and so when I just read this book, it's just, it's like dessert for me. It's fun. I absolutely love it. I adore it. I love and adore the Lord Jesus. So I picked out several portions of this. Obviously, we can't read every verse. We can't exegete every verse. But we could pinpoint high points related to who Jesus is and experiencing him. And I like saying experiencing Jesus because to me, as we look at the Hebraic mindset of all of Scripture, it's about experiencing God, not just intellectually understanding Him. And so the Hebraic mindset was a knowledge of God that was uh, knowing experientially the God that we serve. Um, and so in no particular order, just to make it easier, I'm going to go chronologically, not based on importance, but based on how it is set up in the book of Hebrews. I want us to just run through this book a bit and we'll land wherever we land. So let's start off with Hebrews chapter 1. And I want to talk about for this first point, 
experiencing Christ as the final word of authority. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son or by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation or imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And it says so much more about Jesus. The whole uh, book is about who Jesus is. But let's stop there for a moment. And so he's talking about how God spoke to his people, the fathers, who were really the leaders of Israel. The uh, People get confused. They think that the leaders of Israel were the kings and the prophets. They were really the fathers because the whole... Bible is structured basically that God is father and then there's heads of houses and tribes and families. So uh, everything governmentally is structured based on families. Uh, New Testament, that's why it's set up that way. The government of God in 1 Timothy 3 is really based on a family structure. We get caught up in apostle, prophet and all that. But really the underpinning governmental structure is family. So he spoke to the fathers by the prophets because they were the ones who really had the authority to say yay or nay in terms of the direction of Israel. But, not over against, but now, even better, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the word last days, it's not talking eschatologically about the end of the world. It's basically talking about uh, the last days. Some people say the last days of Israel uh, because it was written in Hebrews. Uh, but it's talking about the, the church age and the kingdom age. So in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So we find that the prophets of the First Testament were the primary a voice or mouthpiece of God. That's not, you know that's a dumb moment here because obviously you all know that and study that. Um, but what I have found in charismatic Pentecostal circles is oftentimes people are led by prophecies and not led primarily by Scripture. And what we have to understand is. He says that in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, which means that the words that have been left that either were personally spoken by Jesus and or the apostles that sat under him uh, are the way that God primarily speaks today. Meaning that those words are the words that every other word we give or receive, whether through vision, through dream, or through prophetic word or prophecy, or through preaching, or through exhortation. Everything has to line up with the words that either Jesus spoke or his apostles spoke, as recorded in the New Testament scriptures. And this may sound simple, but um, the challenge is, when we have people, whether they spend a lot of time worshiping and praying or uh, going to conferences and prophesying, if they do not equally spend time pouring over the word, then inevitably, inevitably what's going to happen is they are going to be led more by subjective experiences than by the word of God. Now, the word of God is not just a written word. Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. And so when you pour over the word, the word of God becomes flesh. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 8, quoting Jeremiah, that he wants his law to be written on our heart. And so basically as we live uh, in, a, in a way where we're regularly pouring over the word of God, meditating on the word day and night, uh, regurgitating it, constantly thinking about it, rechewing it, uh, constantly allowing God to mold us, to transform us, 
to uh, change our hearts, change our minds. As we do that, then we will know intuitively, we will know instantly, we will know immediately when somebody is speaking truth. Because it's not just the overt black and white word that we're going to get, but we're also, as we're in fellowship with God, principles related to that in our life will explode. Insights will explode. Things that are not even directly connected to its original intent will explode that are related to us. And we'll have amazing, amazing ability, which we would call discernment. Uh, And uh, I would say that, I'd say as a pastor, I I hadn't really had a hands-on pastoral role for many years. Uh, I just recently came back to our church after several years being away. Um, But starting a church almost 32 years ago and sending out many, many pastors and leaders uh, and just ministering the body of Christ for a long time, I have come to a conclusion that I cannot empirically uh, prove, but I believe that about 98% of the things people are praying about, they don't even have to pray about if they would pour over the Word of God. Uh, There are people that are asking God for wisdom and things that uh, the Word of God already told them, either directly or in principle, what they should be doing. Um, And uh, there's indirect insight that comes from pouring over the Word in the Holy Ghost that is so profound and so powerful that if you journal while you're doing that, you're going to almost think you're prophesying to yourself because you're getting things in the spirit that other people haven't even said or you haven't heard preachers preach. And you're writing these things down and they apply specifically to you. So it's not just a written word. It's not just a logos, but it is a rhema. It's a a real living word uh, that God wants to bring to us. So the first point in experiencing Christ, we have to experience him as the final word. And if you are led primarily through prophecies, I believe you're, you're in error. If you are led primarily through subjective experiences that you cannot back up in Scripture, you're in error. Um, even Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel other than the one that you heard us preach, let him be eternally condemned. And so there are even signs and wonders and experiences we can have that are not from God. So we have to be very, very careful. Uh, And of course you have people that feel something emotionally and they speak the word of the Lord. Uh, One of my favorite chapters, and this really blew my mind, I actually have one of my seven books out is uh, Essays on the Apostolic, and one of the chapters is contrasting the apostolic from the prophetic, and it's very, very hard to discern the two. Um, and as I, I talked about the, the office of prophet in contemporary times, uh, one of the things that really, really struck me through the years was Jeremiah chapter 23, where it talks about how the prophets didn't just receive a word from God, they were in the counsel of God when God was making the decision. That's, that's deep stuff. You read it. Uh, that's why uh, Isaiah chapter 6 is a profound chapter. That's an experience of a prophet being in the counsel of God. And God saying, who shall I send? First uh, Kings chapter 22, we see the prophet Micaiah was literally in the counsel of God. When God was talking to the 70 elders and some believe they're angels. I mean, whatever who they are, uh, you can have conjecture on that. But he was in his council and making his decisions. And Micaiah heard the voice of the Lord tell him what to do. Uh, and so prophets are literally in a governmental place. Those who stand in the office, not just those who prophesy. Anybody could prophesy, but few are standing in the office of prophet. And so they were in the council of God. 
And so as we understand this, this whole thing of being in the council of God, man, that's, that's some amazing, amazing stuff. That brings it to a whole nother level. Uh, and so as we're really uh, delving into the prophetic, we need to understand that now in the new covenant, God has called all of us because we can come boldly through the blood of Jesus into the most holy place. We could all stand in the council of God not just a few prophets. So uh, hearing the word of the Lord is so, so important, but we will not have discernment if we're not pouring over the written word of God. We will easily be misled and uh, we will be led by our emotions. I mean, it's, it's funny. I, I see people that they pray about who their mate should be and they fall in love with someone, then they pray about if that's the right one. No, that's the wrong order. When you start feeling attracted to someone, you stop it and you pray, you fast, you get a hold of God before your heart makes a commitment. Because once your heart makes a commitment, few people on the earth will be mature enough to back away or even be unbiased in hearing the voice of the Lord. So... We are led by our subjective emotions. We prophesy out of that. And in Jeremiah 23, uh, God was uh, rebuking the prophets of Israel's day because they were saying things that God never told them to say. They were not standing in his counsel and they were running without his word. Um, and so now the main way we could stay in his counsel is by pouring over the word of God. So that's so important. So it says that in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. So if we're not pouring over the word of God, we could easily be be misled even by spiritual experiences. So we want to experience Jesus as the final word in our life. Second way we could experience Jesus, let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is to say he became flesh and blood just like other humans, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so the second way we can experience Jesus is as the one who destroyed the works of the devil, the one who destroyed the power of sin, the one who destroyed the power of the flesh over us, the one who destroyed death over us and delivered us from the fear of death. And that's a, it's an amazing thing how many people in the body of Christ uh, are dealing with anxiety, are dealing with paranoia, dealing with phobias. Um, I've dealt with uh, uh, anxiety myself. I'm not putting anyone else down. I think everybody here, <laughs> if you're a human, you're going to deal with some level of, of anxiety. It's a very interesting thing in the book of Romans chapter 7, how uh, as you read that, Paul makes a distinction between the inner man that loves God uh, and the flesh that, that is really challenged with, with sin. Um, and so we have a dual personality, so to speak. We have that part of us that is in the spirit. Jesus comes in our spirit. He doesn't come in our mind when we get saved. So our mind has to be renewed, but the spirit is instantly saved. Our mind is trying to catch up, and our body is trying to catch up with what Jesus already did for us in the spirit. So because of that, in our spirit, we're at rest, we're at peace. But sometimes we surrender to the enemy ground, which enables him to claim certain parts of our life, which gives us fear. And so, you know, we could be totally in the spirit one moment and next moment in a different situation and then be gripped with paranoia, anxiety or fear. It's because there's a duality in all of us. A part of us have surrendered to the enemy, and we've never allowed Jesus to take that part of our life back. And so what Jesus did was he delivered us from the fear of death. Death is the ultimate 
destination for sinners and all of our fears are directly connected to somehow thinking that we're going to have a horrible ending. Uh, We're going to have separation from God. We're going to have a death. We're going to cease to be connected to our loved ones or to our own life here. So I believe if you, and I'm not a psychologist, but if you get to the root issue, I mean the root of all the roots of all the issues of the fears that we as human beings deal with, it's death. And so what this is saying here is that Jesus delivered us from the fear of death, meaning that those areas of our life that Satan has a stronghold over us, those areas of our life that Satan has a grip those areas of our life that we have subconsciously surrendered to the enemy, Jesus has already delivered us from that fear of death, which means legally we have the right to receive any healing. We have the right to receive emotional health. We have the right to receive total wholeness, spirit, soul, and body. So Jesus is our psychologist. Let's say that. We could experience him as our emotional healer, as our psychological healer, as the one who delivers us from the fear of death. So this fear of death is not just being afraid to die, go to hell. Uh, It really has a root cause that functions experientially in every kind of phobia, every kind of thing that we go through in life. And so as we allow that part of the Word of God to come in us, and we surrender those areas to God simultaneously as we have this revelation of Christ, we surrender those areas that we believe the enemy still has a foothold in, we can experience the legal ramifications of being delivered from death. Isn't that powerful? So Jesus has already delivered us from the fear of death. Oh, I think that's awesome. He's already delivered us from the devil. I mean... Uh, I remember when I, I, I first started in full-time church ministry. I don't like saying full-time ministry because I believe every saint is in full-time ministry. You could be an architect, a plumber, a parent. You're in full-time ministry. But I say church ministry. I remember uh, that was in 1980. Uh, so this November, it will be, uh, what, 35 years of full-time church ministry. Wow, it's amazing. So... I remember when I started ministering in our at-risk community of Sunset Park, uh, it was filled with devils. There was drug violence and gang violence, murders. I saw 14-year-old kids with shotguns on the street, Um, and I was out in the street, and we were so used to seeing people with guns that... I kept on preaching, even though he was five feet away from me trying to shoot people. Uh, And people, you know, wouldn't even hardly get out of the way. That's how common it was. I saw young people on the streets dead, um, and we went door to door. We closed streets off. Uh, We were bold. We weren't afraid of the gangs. We won the respect of many of the gangs who would follow me around while I preached and actually served as bodyguards. Um... (laughs) I never asked them to be. Uh, I remember two people uh, had the uh, intention of assassinating me. Uh, and they came up. To, they, their plan was to make an altar call. With, and they had knives in their pocket. And they, their plan was to kill me. And they said they got saved. And they co- confessed it later on. But we were in a really dark place in that community. And we saw a total transformation within 15 years. I mean... You couldn't see gangs anymore. They were either dead, saved, or in jail. Very little drugs. Uh, and uh, I can't say it was only our ministry, but, you know, we spent a lot of time fasting and praying, doing spiritual warfare. Uh, we did 37 street meetings in one summer, and um, we united a lot of churches together. We, we fought pornography. I mean, there's so many different things we did. And we started bringing about two to 300 kids into our church every week. Uh, preaching the gospel. So, uh, but anyway, one of the things that we were never trained for, I went to Bible school for a year. It was a Baptist Bible school, so I definitely wouldn't have been trained. Non-charismatic fundamentalist cessationist Bible school, by the way, for one year. 
Uh, and I was not ready for the onslaught of the demonic. Um, and I remember the first time, here I was 21, 22 years old, first time uh, encountering this. I had, uh, we were renting an apartment uh, for $250 a month, which is a joke compared to what you can get. The average rental in New York City is about $3,000 now. But uh, I remember I'm, I'm having this Bible study with about 12 or 15 people. And this little girl, her name was Nilda. I still remember Nilda. She was about 98 pounds, five foot one Hispanic woman, started speaking in a voice that was like a man's voice. And started saying, I hate you. And she leaped on me and started choking me and threw me on the floor. So it took three or four people to take her off me, and I didn't know what to do. So I stood on a chair and I started reading Psalm 91. I didn't know what to do. And so I was baptized into the, the demonic. And uh, I remember even asked, you know, calling up people, asking my pastor. I mean, nobody knew what to tell me. So my wife happened to watch a film where they actually cast demons out of somebody. And what we were doing, we were arguing with the devil. We were telling the devil off. We were going back and forth, wasting our time. And my wife said, you know, Joe, I don't think we're supposed to talk to the devil. Except say, shut up and come out. And I said, oh, all right. Well, let's try that. And uh, I was amazed. I started saying, shut up and come out. And they started coming out. And... And we started, we started doing hundreds of, I, a few years later, I found out my name was listed amongst the deliverance ministers of, of America. I don't know how that happened. And uh, people would call me up and say, you're one of the one, top 100 deliverance ministers in the U.S. I, I need deliverance. And I'd say, what? I, I didn't even bother responding. But I found out firsthand how this passage is true. He destroyed Satan. He destroyed the works of the devil. And in the name of Muhammad, they don't come out. In the name of Buddha, they don't come out. In the name of Confucius or Napoleon, they don't come out. But in the name of Jesus, they just come running out. And uh, I started having so much fun. And I'll tell you, we hardly see any demonic manifestations now. I, I haven't seen maybe two in the last 15 years in our church, in our community. But before that, for the first 15 years, it was crazy. There was uh, statues of Chungo all over the place and Santeria and this and that. I mean, I, I could spend the next two hours telling you stories about, you know, the demonic experiences we had. I remember one time... Um, we were uh, doing a, a group, and every time we laid hands on this crowd, there was like three or four of them, they would go down. And I said to my wife, there's something strange about it. I don't think they're going down by the Holy Ghost. I think that this is demonic. For some reason, I think that the demons don't want us to pray for them, and they just go down right away. And it's hard to discern the difference. But I'd spend much time in prayer before I ever spoke. And uh, so I was just trying to discern that. And sure enough, I said to this one girl, Gladys, I said, can you just stay back after the meeting's over? And she said, okay. And uh, so I said, sit down. I want to pray for you. So I started praying for her. Man, she went on the floor into convulsions, started crawling like a snake. And so I just had my wife with me and we got on top of her and started, we held it down and started commanding spirits to come out. I think we counted 38 spirits and they would come out like a wind, like you'd almost feel a wind coming out of them. Thank God she wasn't a puking demon coming out. Those are awful. But I only had a few of those. God have mercy on me. And uh, I remember, man, she was manifesting voices you know, then the wind come out and uh, one of her neighbors just, they all just, they lived in this big apartment building with 65 people, uh, 65 families rather. 
And they would just walk in and out. And this one neighbor came in and saw me go, Come out in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Heard voices and all that. And he went running out. I mean, he didn't know what happened. Scared to death. We had those experiences too. Um, but we saw firsthand the power of the name of Jesus. So we need to experience what it tells us in Hebrews that he came that he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death was subject to lifelong slavery. We need to experience firsthand that we have authority over the name of, over, uh, through the name of Jesus over every demonic entity. One of my favorite stories of Smith Wigglesworth was when he was sleeping one night and his bed started shaking and he got up and he saw Satan shaking his bed and he said, oh, it's only you. And he went right back to sleep. <laughs> and there are Christians that are afraid of voices and little things at night. And uh, I said, what are you afraid of? Once you get this revelation, you realize that demonic entities are like little cucarachas. You just step on them. But they are not your problem. Your problem is your flesh. Demons are the least of your problem. Once you have this revelation, you realize that Jesus has overcome every demonic entity. Let's skip on to uh, Hebrews chapter 3. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So here we see Jesus is our apostle. Someone say our apostle. So he's not only the final word, because someone could give a lot of words and they could be all over the map. They could be pithy sayings, aphorisms. They could be like the book of Proverbs from chapter 10 to 31, where <laughs> that would be the hardest book in the Bible to memorize because it doesn't flow together. They're just separated sayings. Very few of them are connected, right? So Jesus didn't just give us these pithy sayings like Confucius but he was laying a foundation. Some would say a foundation. foundation. Apostles lay a foundation. Uh, I remember um, several years ago, I was with a really powerful prophet. Uh, he's really in the office of prophet. Good, good friend of mine. And uh, I was kind of arguing with him. I said, you know, a lot of what I do, isn't it still in the prophetic? He said, no, Joe. I said, why? I said, I'm always correcting the body of Christ in my writings. I'm, you know, I'm very strong in my preaching and the way I, I get words from God. I don't just teach old sermons. And he said, Joe, no, 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 no. He said, the difference between you and me is he says, you are always laying a foundation. You are always dealing with foundations. And I didn't fully understand what he was talking about until, you know, God, God had started showing me. So... Uh, you know, it's not just being prophetic. Jesus didn't just give us words, but apostles are always building on a foundation that Jesus already laid. So Jesus didn't just give us pithy sayings like Confucius. He laid a foundation. Uh, Moses was told, see that you follow the blueprint that I gave you from heaven. Jesus gave us a wineskin, the wineskin, a structure. He was the new covenant. He gave us the whole covenant. He didn't just give us wise sayings. To compare Jesus to Confucius or to compare Jesus to uh, uh, Mahatma Gandhi or compare Jesus to uh, Deepak Chopra or some kind of new age uh, guru, it's ridiculous. Jesus gave a whole not only a structure, he ushered in a new era. He brought in a new heaven, a new earth. His rules so changed the game that it was called a new heaven and a new earth. We'll see a full manifestation of that in the last days. But he changed that. He said, I've given you the keys of the kingdom. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. That's a new heaven and a new earth. That means that the, the way things are being done are forever changed. I have changed how heaven and earth interact, how they operate. He brought a structure. He brought the wineskin. He brought a whole era. So when we're reading the words of Jesus, we have to see 
how it relates to our foundation, how it relates to our presuppositions and assumptions, how it relates to worldview. In other words, don't just look at individual words that will correct you. Jesus was our apostle, not just our prophet. He wanted to bring the structure to your life, structure to your organization, structure to your movement, structure to your church, structure he wants to give you a blueprint. He's your architect. Uh, he's not just somebody who helps you paint the wall of your house. He teaches you how to build the house. And so as we look at Jesus and experience him like that, we get so much more out of it. He doesn't want to bless your life only. He wants to build your life. He wants to give you life. He wants to give you purpose. He wants to change our paradigms, challenge them. And bring a whole new direction, not only a whole new direction, but a whole new way of thinking and being. It's amazing. We just look at Jesus, we get convicted for immorality, we get convicted for this, and that's fine. But we need to get convicted for how we're living. Our assumptions, not just individual words. How many are following that? So he's our apostle. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4. Let's go to verse 8. We've, we can experience Jesus as our rest. Someone say our rest. It says in verse 8, For if Joshua had given the children of Israel rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his own works as God did from his. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Powerful. I'm still trying to unpack that for my life. Striving to enter his rest. Jesus uh, talked about that. I believe he's probably referring to that in Hebrews when Jesus said, as was recorded in Matthew chapter 11, in verse 28 to 30, he said, Come unto me, all you who are heavy, laden, and weary, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am lowly and meek in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Meaning, the more we align with his will, the more we trust in him, the less of a burden we feel because we're filled with his grace. In other words, the more we know him, the more we trust him. You can't get this just by memorizing the scripture. That's what's so profound about this. You can memorize it. You can confess it. You can think about it. You could exegete it. You could look at the original Hebrew and Greek shades of it or Aramaic and Greek shades of it. But that's still not it. This is something that you cannot disconnect from your emotions. Entering his rest. It starts in the spirit, but it affects the emotions. There's a spillover. It affects the thinking, affects the mind, affects the process of fear. It affects everything. It's profound. And uh, God showed me years ago, the more... I learn to enter his rest the more responsibility he can give me. Pastors burn out because either they're doing things that God never told them to do because they're just being led by their own ambition and competition with other pastors to build the biggest ministry. Or God told them to do it, but they are not entering his rest. And Jesus wants us to live this life in his rest. And I can't say I have arrived. I still deal with anxiety at times. I still um, run ahead of God at times. I still uh, struggle to enter his rest. And I believe that every time you go to a new level of responsibility, you have to adjust mentally and emotionally and learn how to put that now in his rest. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, it's like every... I remember I was ministering to a guy. He was a very high-level businessman. And I was mentoring him. 
And he was very concerned. He started telling me, you know, Joe, I'm really, I feel like I'm falling. I said, what do you mean you're falling? I feel like I'm losing ground. I said, what do you mean you're losing ground? He said, I'm just giving in to more temptation. I'm, there's more and more of this stuff getting thrown at me. I said, let me tell you something. You are not regressing. You are advancing. You are now in a new level of responsibility, and now there's new levels of demonic activity. You are now learning how to adjust. Every new level means a new devil. The higher you go in leadership, the more pressure, the more you're going to have to adjust, the more you're going to have to deal with crises. It's not just having humility. It's not just having integrity. Two of the most important attributes, if you want to be a high-level leader, is to be able to deal with a crisis and still function. And number two, to be a problem solver. Those are the two main attributes besides holy character, and that's obviously a Christian virtue. Uh, So if you can't function in high-level stress conditions, God cannot give you anything more. Right? And that's not a put down. Some people, maybe you're not supposed to do more. But uh, the more responsibility we have, the more we have to adjust. We have to grow in our knowledge of God. And I think this is where a lot of high impact leaders have issues. Many activists and high impact leaders do not have a strong personal relationship with Jesus. Many of these folk hardly pray. And many of the people who pray a lot hardly do anything. So you have to have both. If you are going to make a huge difference in this world, you have to have a deep and robust prayer life. That's meaningful. Not that you pray in tongues for 10 hours and don't even know why you're praying. Or uh, I mean, that's okay not to know why all the time. But it's not just robotic prayer. It's, it's entering in and knowing God and, and hearing from God, not just Him hearing from you. So the deeper we go in that knowledge of God and pouring over the scriptures, the more we'll trust him. The more we trust him, the more we enter his rest and the more he can use us in a profound way. Um, Let's go to the next verse here. And let's experience Jesus as the living and active word. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. Some would say living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Powerful, powerful, powerful. So the word of God is not just the written Logos, but it is the active um, rhema word. It interacts with us, and it's so powerful and so sharp, meaning the Word of God is not religious, it's not superficial, doesn't care about your boundaries, doesn't care about areas you say, I'm not going there. When we really let the Word of God enter our hearts, the Word of God forces us to confront ourselves. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it pierces even to the dividing of soul, that is that is the areas that you haven't surrendered. Soul, it's just your emotions. It's just your flesh and spirit. Uh, and so it shows us the difference between the surrendered life and the self-life. Right? And many people in the body of Christ are so religiously minded uh, that they're in the soul life and they've mastered religious lingo, religious experiences. Uh, they do this and that and the other thing and everybody thinks they're such a strong Christian. They might even dance harder and sing louder. Uh, they may be preachers, they may be on the worship team, but they've got the whole thing down. But God says, I'm going to separate soul and spirit. I will confront you. He is calling us whenever we get into the Word of God, not just to prepare for a message, not just to get more knowledge, but primarily when we get in the Word of God, He's calling us to be self-aware. He's calling us to be honest. He's calling us to allow Him to go deeper than anybody has ever gone before. That's why it says in the book of James, 
that he who is not a doer of the word is like a man who looks in the mirror and forget what he looks like. So the word of God becomes a mirror. It's a perfect law of liberty that shows us the way of freedom. And there are many of us who are so religious that we're not even honest with God, never mind with ourselves. We're afraid to go there. We're afraid to face pain. We're afraid to face challenges. There are certain people, when you start talking to them about certain issues of their life, they shut down, they disconnect, they don't want to go there. They'll make up a lie. They'll do anything to get out of that conversation. God is not like that. And so uh, there's a certain point where you will stop growing in a legitimate way, in God's way, when you shut down and you stop allowing the Lord to go there. And it takes courage. You have to, f- you have to face pain. You have to face trauma. You have to allow the Word of God to show you your hypocrisy, show you where you fall short. He not only shows us how blessed we are, but he also shows us where we fall short. That's why he says he separates soul and spirit. He shows us the difference between what we have manufactured in our life and what we're keeping going and what he's really doing in our life. And as we allow the Lord to do that here, then uh, uh, he could take us to greater heights and then He won't have to deal with that later on. And then it says that there is no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all things are laid open and naked to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's why it tells us in the book of Revelation, which is, by the way, not a book about the last days as much as it is a revelation of the Son of God. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 1. It says this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, the word apocalypse, uh, which is the original Greek word, means the uncovering. It's a book that uncovers who Jesus is. And in Revelation chapter 2, he says that I search the hearts and the reins of every person. That's why it says that he has eyes that are of a flame of fire. They're discerning. They're holy. They burn up what is not of him. And when we're really serious about being with Jesus... We allow him to touch the dross. It says in Malachi chapter 3 that the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. And he will come as the refiner's fire and as the purifier of silver to come and purify the sons of Levi as the refiner purifies silver and gold. So when he comes, when he visits, he doesn't just visit in revival, he visits as a chiropractor. He brings discipline. He brings correction. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's not pleasant. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that when he comes, he disciplines those whom he loves. And he says, no discipline at the moment seems pleasant but uh, uh, it's very painful but then afterwards it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness and so as we allow Jesus as we experience Jesus in his Hebrews 4 uh, 11 and 12 manner we become self-aware we become honest we say to God go there I want you to go there sometimes you may need a counselor to help you go there sometimes you may need people to help deal with the trauma of course sometimes you may need some professional Christ-centered therapy. That's fine. Sometimes you might need deliverance, but continue. Have courage. Go there. Let him divide soul and spirit. I have found that spirituality and emotional health go hand in hand. With the kind of life I've lived dealing, I don't do it as much as I used to, dealing with high-level political leaders and uh, leading the fight against uh, for traditional marriage in New York, amongst pastors and doing a lot of those kind of things, even running people for political office a few years ago. I mean, we're really doing a lot of what we would think wouldn't even be churchy stuff. Uh, We have a separate organization that deals with politics and social things. With that kind of life that I lived, I had to constantly read books on emotional health, on digging down deep, reading books of the mystics, of the early church fathers, of the... Uh, people who have really, really known God. And I did that to protect my own soul because I realized that so many activists were more 
driven by a cause than by Christ. And I only wanted to do what Jesus really called me to do. And I didn't want to be caught up in activism to the point at which I became a human doer instead of a human being. And so in our network where I give covering to leaders, and we don't just cover pastors. We have high-level marketplace leaders, political leaders, different people. Uh, I teach more on emotional health and spirituality than I do on the kingdom because most of those people are doing all the kingdom stuff anyway. But where they're really missing it is in this, this, this area of being honest and allowing God to bring healing to them. And so we got to allow Jesus to separate soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Uh, what I'm going to do now is stop at this point because I don't want to go into too much tonight. Um, there's probably five more ways we could experience Christ in the book of Hebrews. So I'll, I'll continue this tomorrow night and we'll pick up in Hebrews chapter, um, uh, chapter six or seven, and we're going to go to Hebrews 13, but I believe we need to have a full rounded, full orbed, robust understanding of who Jesus is. It just can't be, Oh, he's my healer. He's my deliverer. And we memorize a few pet promises and that's how deep many people have gone in God. And they're not ready when the fire comes. I've known people that were powerful prophets that could preach, that could move in the gifts. And they were some of the most self-centered, emotionally immature people I've ever met. When we go the way of Jesus and the way of the cross, and I'm still learning this. I by no means arrived. He's killing me every day. Paul said I die daily. I, I feel like I'm going to die, and that's good. I feel like I can't take it anymore sometimes. That's good. Because that's when you forced to enter his rest. But we need to get to a place where we are plumbing the depths of the ways of Jesus, not just the ministry of Jesus. The foundation of our life will never be our gifts and ability and, and anointing. The foundation of our life is going to be building on character and integrity, which comes from knowing Jesus, being like him. When you try to be humble, you'll never be humble. John the Baptist said it right. He said, he must increase and I will decrease. When you try to decrease, you will fail. I will fail. I've tried. I remember as a, as a new pastor and our church was exploding. And I was starting to get puffed up. And I knew what scripture said. Pride comes before a fall. And I tried to save myself of that. And I started getting, you know, it's okay to be excited over the things of God, but you have to know the difference between excitement that's almost proud and excitement that's in the spirit, right? Joyful in Christ. Well, I knew I was excited because of my accomplishments. I knew it in my head, but in my heart, I wasn't mature enough to get there. So I started saying, oh God, I don't want to feel this way. And I tried to humble myself and I said, no, I, every time I got like that, I was a week or two away from hell breaking loose, fire coming, pain. And I realized that there's only so much we can humble ourselves. You can't make yourself grow. As a matter of fact, God showed me I can't even change myself. Some people try to change their spouse. They can't even change himself. Never mind change their spouse. Transformation can only come from Jesus. The best that any of us could do is to give God space to change us. Give him opportunity by spending a lot of time with him, whether it in church, preaching, or personal time. Giving him space. And as we do that, as we have these true encounters... Uh, it'll change who we are. We'll become more Christ-like, not just in anointing and ministry. 
charismatic world is focused on the gifts of the Spirit, but neglected the fruit of the Spirit. And that's why we have so many scandals. It's like Samson, who had great power, but didn't even know it when the Holy Ghost left him. There are ministries and churches that if the Holy Ghost left, they wouldn't even know it because they're built on programs and marketing and administration, which is fine. But without the Holy Spirit, it's just dead, it's dry bones. And so God doesn't want us just to be powerful and anointed. And I'm not saying anybody here thinks that, but just exhorting something that you already know. But he wants us to, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And it doesn't come by trying to do it. It comes by just being with Jesus. Being with Jesus, he increases and then we decrease. So let's experience Jesus and all that he has to offer. And we'll continue this tomorrow night. Let's all stand and commit ourselves to him. And then I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Russ. Father, we thank you. Let's just be silent before him. Any of those areas that were mentioned tonight that you believe God is pinpointing those ways of experiencing him, either Jesus is the final word in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2, the one who delivers us from Satan and from sin and death. Number three, Jesus as the apostle, the one who gives us a foundation for living, not just individual words. Number four, Jesus who gives rest to our soul. And number five, Jesus who confronts us with our self-life, the one who comes as a sharp double-edged sword, pierces even to the dividing asunder, soul and spirit of the joints and marrow. Neither is there anything hidden from his eyes, but all things are laid open and naked to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, confronting us with who we are, how we're living, our attitudes, our motives, the secret things of our soul. If any of those areas Jesus is dealing with you, Why don't you just put your hand up? Jesus will see that hand. Let's uh, just come up in the front and, and just stand here. And just it's holy ground. This whole camp is holy ground. Let the great prophet and apostle begin to minister to you right now. Just keep your hand up. Come, Holy Spirit. Do what you want to do now. We know that we're laid bare and naked before you. We cover ourselves up with makeup and clothes and religiosity and, and, and a way of acting churchy. But you see everything. You see every motive. And God, we pray. We'd be, we'd allow you to to show us what you want from us. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for separating soul and spirit, for coming as a chiropractor, the Lord whom we seek will come suddenly to his temple and will come as refiners, fire, and purifier of silver and gold so that the sons of Levi may be purified. Oh God, thank you for the sons of Levi in this room that you're purifying. Thank you for the trials and tribulations 
that you've allowed us to experience in this past year. Father, those who are thinking of quitting the ministry or leaving their family or quitting on themselves, God, that you would visit them in encouragement, comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable tonight. Comfort the disturbed. Comfort the disturbed. Oh, Holy Spirit, our comforter, our counselor, come and comfort those who are thinking of quitting. Come unto me, Jesus said, all ye who are heavy laden and burdened. The weights on your back are too great for you to carry. Come, those who are like that. And I will give you rest. Father, that they would experience your rest and peace even now. And those, O oh God, who have played the religious game that may be in here tonight, save them. Save us. Save me. Save us from superficiality. Help us to be conscious of unconscious suppositions that are superficial that have stopped you from going there forgive us forgive me for stopping you for either consciously or even unconsciously stopping you stopping you from peering into our soul father we pray forgive us that we would not stop you from transforming us 